Hello and welcome back to God's Word During Exile. We are a podcast of four pastors, sometimes a guest, that are leading a Bible study. Currently, we find ourselves in the book of Revelation, uh, and we are into chapter 8. We have some exciting news for next week. Uh, We're going to be primarily concentrating on verses 1 through 5 today, uh, because next week, Jason Goodham is going to be rejoining us. Um, to kind of give us an overview of the trumpets that will be following these first five verses. So be sure to uh, look out for next week's podcast as we drop it, because we're really excited to have Jason back on uh, and to really be able to tap into his knowledge and wisdom as he studies, as he studied the book of Revelation in great detail. Um, And I love the way that he kind of unpacks stuff in both a humorous and serious side while adding some sarcasm in there, which is the part that I like about him the most. Uh, He's practically an East Coaster, even though he lives in the Midwest. And so I can really relate to him, which is great. Um, I want to just straight up apologize really quick. I know that we have some people who really look forward to the podcast being dropped on Thursdays. We apologize that we're getting it out to you guys now. Um, But we had a couple things come up yesterday that we needed to take care of. And now we are just happy that we can be here studying God's word with you. So thank you for your patience. Um, Next week, we already have it in the docket to record on Thursday with Jason. So you'll get your a weekly fix on Thursday of this week, unless of course we hit the record button and it doesn't record and then you might have nothing. So pray to the Lord that everything goes well and we'll continue to trust in him as we move forward. This is Mike, this is Ben, this is Matt, and we're going to read God's word. Uh, No, we're going to pray first. Matt, do you want to uh, open us in prayer? Let's do that. Well, Lord, we thank you for your word. And I thank you that we can gather together to, to read it. It's such a treasure. And so we thank you for preserving it for us, giving it to us to give us hope and peace in the midst of this crazy world. And I thank you that in your word and in Jesus, we can find true unity. And so even though all of us who are participating in this are scattered all over the place, uh, we are all finding unity in you. And so that's such a great thing, and we're encouraged by that, and we ask that your Holy Spirit that is with each and every one of us would be working in our hearts and minds today to receive your word, uh, lead us to repentance and faith once again today, that we might uh, find peace in our hearts and hope for the future. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. So, Mike, I should let you know, you got... <clears throat> the positioning of everybody, like of, of all the videos, right, but only got one out of three with the names. So then it's got to go Mike, Matt, Ben. You got it. Yeah. Sweet. There it is. Nice. Only took two tries today. Awesome. I feel like sometimes that box game, I feel like I'm on the prices right, where it's like, uh, do I have one box correct? Do I have no boxes correct? No, nobody knows about prices, uh, right? We've seen it. Enough. Let's just get to God's word. I'm sorry. Guys. All right. So I'm going to read uh, from Revelation chapter eight. We're actually going to read the whole chapter today. There's only 13 verses there, even though we're only focusing on those 
First five, just want to set the context a little bit. So I'll read from the English Standard Version today, and we read in Jesus' name. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. And he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood, and those were thrown upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up, a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. Then I looked, and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. I don't know that we should have ended in verse 13. That's kind of a sad place to end with woes, right? Um, does somebody want to say something about Jesus real quick at the end? I think if John said something, it would just be rub some dirt in it. <laughs> John, suck it up. Quit crying. Get back to work. <laughs> so isn't it appropriate that he ends with whoa, whoa, whoa. Maybe it's finally caught up to him about all the crying. Oh, goodness. All right, we're at the final seal. Um, that's pretty cool, pretty fun that we've come this far. The lamb is gonna open up that seventh and last one of the seals before we get into the next cycles of trumpets and other things. Uh, and as the lamb opens that seventh seal, something kind of strange, very different from the rest of them happens. You know, with the first four seals, we had the, the horsemen. Um, it seemed like there was always something happening and moving and something crazy, but as this seal gets cracked open, instead, what we get is silence in heaven for a half an hour. Um, what's the significance of this, this silence that comes here with the opening of the seventh seal? I'll, I'll let you guys answer in the positive here, but I was thinking about this. I My impression is that it's not like he opened it up and it's like, oh, it's it's empty, is is there anything in here? Like, should I shake it out? Like, look around. Oh no, it's uh, there's supposed to be something in here, but it's it's there's nothing here. God, God you that. God, you forgot to fill this one out. Right? Yeah, I don't I don't think that that's what was going on here. But it seems very dramatic, um, and I don't. So I mean, some have said that it's for a dramatic pause, or 
but and that certainly would be dramatic. You can imagine if there's been, you know, a cacophony of sounds and and praises and all this activity going on, and then and then the great anticipated seal is broken, and then there's silence. I mean, 30 seconds probably feels like 30 minutes when you have that kind of silence, but now you've got actually 30 minutes. It's, it's actually striking or it's shocking how striking silence can be sometimes. Um, in the church that I grew up in, uh, in the old section of it, so I guess shout out to, to Bethel Free Lutheran in Minot, North Dakota. Uh, in the old part of it, when you would use the men's bathroom, the, uh, the vent fan for that bathroom was so outrageously loud that when you would flip it off and step out and there was silence, it was, it was scary. It was like, did people, was everybody listening to me? What in the world is going on? So silence can be a really shocking thing when you're used to the sound. Mm -hmm. So who's going to? Who's going to figure this out for us? Well, I was just waiting for the silence to keep going, and I was waiting to see who would break that silence first. Just see how I couldn't happened. handle it. We were oh, trying to illustrate. illustrate. <laughs> yeah. Mike, I was... So before we recorded, you had mentioned something from a commentator named Beal. And what does he uh, equate this silence to? Well, it wasn't just Beale. It was a couple of commentators that oh, actually nice. equated this silence with uh, with the judgment of God. And they they referenced some passages. Let me see if I can find one just real quick, like uh, like Zechariah 2.13, where it says, Be silent all flesh before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. Um, so it, it might be that, you know, it's not that this doesn't have content, but the silence is actually this anticipation of the coming judgment of God, which we heard about uh, much of in the, in the last seal as, as the sixth one was open. But um, yeah, I think, I think it'd be very fair to make those connections because silence is connected with judgment in other places in Holy scripture. And the sixth and seventh seals here are, are dealing with in, in various ways, the return of Christ and, and judgment. Yeah. One yeah. of the connections that I really saw right in the, right as you read that was that moment as Christ is being crucified and he cries out, uh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Also um, can be understood as like, my God, my God, why have you left me alone? And at that moment, Jesus, with the weight of all the earth's sins upon him, was feeling separation from God at that very moment. And perhaps he was in a moment of complete silence as God is judging him and pouring out his wrath upon him to pay for the sins of the world. And so I think that we can kind of make that connection too, where, you know, maybe it wasn't a half hour of silence, but that there was a point where Jesus literally felt like he was alone as he was paying for these sins. And the connection that I really like to make is through faith, um, we never have to feel separated from God. Uh, and that, that is the joy that, that is one of the many joys that Christ took with him to the cross is that he felt that separation so that through faith, um, we never have to experience that. Yeah, I think um, too, as well, Mike, what you're saying too is that, you know, you're pointing out the connection of silence with God's judgment. Um, 
And I think that fits well because if we if we are understanding as we as we would advocate um, in this that the trumpets are covering the same time period as the seals, it wouldn't make any sense then that the silence is preparation for what comes next in Revelation because we have reached the end. And so all that is left then is judgment and then new creation kind of thing. So we have, we have reached the climax as it were. So it's not as if, okay, once the seals are done, then the trumpets pick up and we go on from there. And then the bulls pick up and go on from there, but they're covering the same period of time, just from different angles, different perspectives. And so it would seem to make more sense that the silence is connected with, uh, with God's judgment than, than it would be like, you know, just kind of a prelude to what's coming next. Um, and so, yeah, that fits pretty well. Cause usually you'll find that view of that. It's just kind of a preparation for what comes next is usually find that more with those who will try to piece revelation together chronologically from beginning to end. And it's not meant to function that way. So but you do sometimes get to hear about more nuclear war that way, which is kind of fun. Hmm. I, I'm wondering, what's the, uh, we're, what's we're the biblical hold... Greek word for nuclear war? I didn't find that in the text. We're going to hold all speculation uh, and uh, difficult <laughs> translations for when we have Jason on next week. So if you could hold off talking about you know okay. uh, nuclear fallout and uh, all that other stuff until Jason arrives, we'll definitely hit that next week all, all i'm saying is contact your local volt tech representative <laughs> <laughs> oh man i don't know if this is pulling us back on track at all but i was just looking at this uh pseudepigraphal work of uh, second esdras um chapter Wait, what seven. about what about pigs what are you talking about pigs for now that's not yeah, gonna you, you better unpack what that means for us man <laughs> well it's uh it's like, uh, what would we say? It's, it's somebody, you know, wrote it in somebody else's name. It's not a, it's not a biblical book, but it, pseudepigraphal. So pseudo, it's, it's uh, not, they're writing, you know, with False. using somebody else's name, a book, kind of as if it was theirs. Um, and so I don't know if Ezra's is meant to be Ezra. Do you know uh, anybody? Uh, but Anyway, Second Ezra's chapter seven. This gives us a clue of what the Jews were kind of expecting, you know, uh, before before Jesus came. But it says it connects some of the things we're talking about here. Um, it says, "For indeed the time will come when the signs that I have foretold to you will come to pass, that the city that now is not seen shall appear, and the land that now is hidden shall be disclosed." Everyone who has been delivered from the evils that I have foretold shall see my wonders. For my son, the Messiah, shall be revealed with those who are with him, and those who remain shall rejoice 400 years. After those years, my son, the Messiah, shall die, and all who draw human breath. Then the world shall be turned back to primeval silence for seven days, as it was at the first beginnings, so that no one shall be left. And... So 
I mean, there's a lot in there and, and I don't really know what to make of a lot of this, but they connect the silence that comes here with the silence that was before mankind. Um, um, if we can connect these two silences, but it also references then the death of the Messiah, the son, um, the son and the Messiah. And uh, anyway, some very interesting things here. Um, so I hadn't made that connection um, anywhere else in the scriptures with this silence and the silence that was before creation, but that's an interesting thought too. And we know that in the book of Revelation, there's kind of a, almost a bringing to a close all of the things in creation in the world because it's corrupted, right? And then God is recreating everything. So I'm not sure if we're supposed to make that connection, but also mentions kind of what seems to connect a little bit with what you were saying, Mike, Natal, about um, the, the crucifixion event and the silence uh, being connected with the death of the Messiah. I don't, I don't think Ben likes your point. I think he's crying. <laughs> <laughs> he had his head down, was rubbing his eyes. <laughs> Just reading something. Yeah. So maybe if we've got some listener who knows a lot about uh, the book of Second Esdras or any of those those books, you could uh, give us a clue on how much value to place in any of these words here, but certainly not scripture. Interesting and fun to read sometimes, but yeah, definitely not scripture. I've got a copy of the book of Enoch on my shelf, which definitely not scripture, but it actually kind of plays into um, some questions about the next verse, as long as we're done with verse one. We can move in and talk about these seven angels. Uh, so John sees seven angels standing before God, and they're given seven trumpets, which you know we're going to hear more about, especially next week when Jason is here and as we walk through. Uh, but there's a kind of a lot of debate about who these angels might be. And one of the theories is that they are the seven archangels uh, recorded in the book of Enoch, like chapter 20 or something, because there's a, a list apparently of the, of the archangels in, uh, in Enoch. Um, but how should we view these angels? I mean, it almost definitely is not the seven archangels that are listed in a non-biblical book that John is referencing here. Um, so how should we see these, these seven? We had heard about seven angels before the seven angels of the churches. And there we had talked about, well, maybe this is ac actually an angel for each church, a messenger, because the word is messenger. Um, and we understand it usually to be referencing a, a heavenly being um, who is a messenger. We also talked in relation to the churches that that could also be referencing the pastors who are the messengers of God's word to each church. Um, but I would, you know, maybe maybe we could understand that back there in the in the references to the churches, the angels, which is it seems like maybe it's both an angel and a pastor, maybe even working together on behalf of the church. But the rest of Revelation seems more clear that these are not referencing human beings that these are heavenly beings um and so um that seems to be more consistent through the rest of the book of revelation to not 
not be any reference to the pastors. I don't know. Would you guys agree with that assessment? No, I'm, I'm pretty sure that these are going to be seven, the seven most important Lutheran pastors from the seven most important <laughs> Lutheran denominations of all time. <laughs> so, okay. You want to pick the LB guy guys and ben, Ob you obviously the guy you want to nominate for this. <laughs> it's that's an obvious choice. It's easy. Everybody knows who it is already. All right. We don't need to mention it then. <laughs> ben, you looked like you had something actually smart to say when I jumped in there. I was just going to say that ultimately it doesn't really matter too much uh, who these particular angels are. We just know what they're there to do. Um, and they are doing what they've been you know, commanded to do. So we don't, we don't need to get too caught up. Over it, though, it can be, obviously, can pick one's curiosity to speculate. But, you know, like with the seven archangels that you mentioned, like we only know of two of them uh, in the scriptures, and that is Michael and Gabriel. Um, the other ones, we have no, uh, we have no authoritative word from God that there are any more than those two or that there are only those two. There could be tons. We don't have any idea. You know, God has a whole you know, host of innumerable to us angels and, and creatures at his command. And so um, we do want to, again, kind of put the brakes on with speculation. We, we don't want to go too much into it. They don't have to be connected to any other angels that we've encountered in revelation so far. They could be, but we don't have to connect them just because they're spoken of as, you know, these seven angels who stand before God, it doesn't necessarily mean that we have seen them otherwise in other places. But so anyways, just uh, we don't want to speculate too much. You mean uh, about them, but we shouldn't be looking at the book of first Enoch chapter 20 and they got all the names there, Ben. Yeah, they do. I was actually Israel, looking it up on, I was looking it up on Wikipedia. Michael. Raphael. Yep. There's they got two ninja turtles as the archangels, <laughs> Gabriel, Ural, and then like three names that I'm not even gonna attempt to pronounce because the last time I tried to pronounce stuff Do was it. when Mike forced me to read the King James version of something. And I then super fluty came out that so <laughs> is superfluous. So we'll see. I mean, I I can't help but think sometimes Ben is like, you know, our old oh Ben Juan Kenobi, where I'm like, dude. Help me, O Ben Juan Kenobi. Oh, You're our only hope. That's that's better than the Encyclopedia Britannica, even. <laughs> but yeah, Ben, I'm I'm glad you you pulled that in. I was really hoping that somebody yeah. would go that way, because especially in the Book of Revelation, I think people tend toward speculating about all kinds of things that, frankly, it doesn't matter, right? If it, these are the seven angels that were at the seven churches, cool. If they're the seven angels we see later, that's awesome. If they're the seven exact archangels mentioned in the book of Enoch, fantastic. But the point is they are God's servants doing what God has commanded them to do. Yeah, and just um, speaking of books like, you know, Enoch and whatnot, um, again, as we mentioned, you know, they're not inspired texts we don't read them as we would the scriptures mm -hmm. um they're real kind of their value and their 
their purpose is they kind of give us, they give us a look inside kind of the thinking and eschatology as it were of the Jews during the, what we often call the intertestamental period. So, you know, we have the exile to Babylon and then seven years later they come back and we have some writing prophets uh, during that time. You know, we have Ezra and Nehemiah, for example, you know, and we have, you eventually Malachi and some of these other guys too that are writing prophets. So we have some of their stuff, but then the Old Testament ends, right? And there's about 400 years before John the Baptist comes on the scene and we have the opening of the New Testament. And so it's often called the 400 silent years because during this time there aren't any, there aren't any sacred writings. There's no, you know, God didn't send any prophets that wrote anything down right, that God uh, intended to have recorded in sacred scripture. And so books like, you know, documents like, um, you know, for Ezra and, and Enoch and whatnot, they, they give us a glimpse into the mindset and the thinking that at least was, you know, we could probably say common or at least, you know, prominent enough um, during that time. So it kind of clues us in. And sometimes that can give us some ideas about kind of the background of what's going on in scripture, or maybe some of those things, you know, John would be aware of. So he uses some of that imagery. Um, but we just always want to remember that even, even if that's the case where John is drawing on some of that imagery, that doesn't mean that the whole thing is therefore reliable or accurate. Um, you know, St. Paul can quote from pagan poets, you know, in the midst of, a, you know, addressing people and preaching the gospel to them, it doesn't thereby mean that that poet wrote inspired stuff. So we just want to make sure that we're careful with it. We don't want to go crazy nuts with it and be like, oh, this tells us everything we need to know about it, or this trumps the scriptures. No, it doesn't. So, mm-hmm. so you know, we can, there are things we can learn about it. There are things that can help us understand, um, but we, we don't want to push it too far you know, with that. And we don't want to speculate too much about what scripture doesn't itself tell us. And hopefully everybody is seeing kind of a common theme here throughout each of these Bible study segments that we might speculate a little bit on some of these things, you know, kind of poking around, seeing if these are connected with other things, seeing if we're supposed to understand something about the the significance of numbers or names or words things like that but ultimately you know we're not getting too hung up on any of these things and especially being able to assign it to anything in in our historical timeline or to particular people um and and we're we're definitely not trying to add to the scriptures as if you know, we could read between the lines and fill in the blanks where God missed it, you know, like God left out the names and we're supposed to figure out the names of these seven angels. And, and so let's go ahead and speculate or look at unreliable sources or come up with something um, weird, you know, with this as if God made a mistake and fell short. Um, We need to respect what God's word says. And if he leaves it vague or unidentified, we leave it vague and unidentified and we try to understand then what the point is of the passage, not being able to crack a code that's not there or to figure out all of these extra details that God didn't give to us. So 
um, again, hopefully your mind is put at ease with some of these things. And, you know, we can have a little fun considering some of this stuff, but don't take it too far. We need to hang only on the words that God has given to us and trust that they are sufficient for everything we need for life and salvation. trying to shock people with it a little bit again (laughs) (laughs) got to keep coming back to it all right let's jump into verse three then uh verse three we have another angel showing up and he stood at the altar with a golden censer um i don't have a golden censer in my church do you guys have one in your church ben is thinking really hard to see if he's got one i don't think it's made of gold it's not (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, what? I don't think we have a sensor at all in here. All right. So sensor is not, not something any of us use. What What is the sensor? Maybe Natal's got some sort of picture for us. Oh, good idea. I thought maybe it was one of those things that your tire has in order to tell you that it's low on... Wrong spelling. I hate those sensors, by the way. They're the worst. And they always break at the most inopportune time and cost you a ridiculous amount in order to fix. I'm glad that's not Um, the kind of sensor we're talking about. Yeah. So it's basically a vessel for burning incense. I I don't know if you want to try to call up any pictures or whatnot, but you see them, for example, in... Here's the one I have. Yeah. So something like that. They'd be pretty common in um, Roman Catholic services um probably eastern orthodox as well or they might have them on chains that they can they can swing them back and forth as they walk down the uh you know the aisle in the sanctuary and the smoke of the incense spreads out so yeah so anyways it's a whatever the style basically like a bowl that you can burn frankincense yeah there you go feel like who needed mike to share a video when like literally you guys are just a plethora of look at you, Matt. How many some, do you have here? This is some myrrh. How does he, He's an incense fan. <laughs> See, I didn't have a golden sensor. Plus, mine's not impressive. That's why I didn't, you know, bring it out. Are you not? I don't have a sensor at all. Mike, are you oh. having sensor envy? Is that what's going on right now? No, no, not not really. <laughs> way better don't, than the sensor in your car tires. Way better. 100%. So. You yeah, can don't see burn the size of, on those things. <laughs> you, you can see the size of my office. One of my elders, when he gave me this sensor and some frankincense and myrrh, he lit this bad boy in my office. And it gave us all headaches for like a week. It was the heaviest thing ever. <laughs> oh yeah. So thanks, Leif. So yeah, with uh <laughs> so this kind of idea, the sensor, you know, for burning incense would also you know, called to mind the imagery out of the tabernacle and the temple where they had, um, you know, the altar of incense and where they would burn incense uh, day and night. And so um, we have that, that here in Revelation as well. Um, And so, and it's connected once, once again to the, the prayers of the saints. So you get that imagery. And so the idea then is that just as the the uh, pleasant aroma, at least most people think, or some people think it's pleasant. <laughs> some people <laughs> give them headaches or whatever. Uh, maybe it's just if it's too much, but 
you know, the pleasant aroma of the smoke from the incense then rising up to heaven is a picture of our prayers going up to God in heaven and pleasing him. And he is satisfied with that. And that's, that's a wonderful comfort, comforting image then that God looks at the prayers of the saints in that way as something pleasing. And I also think back, you know, to the fact that on the day of atonement, they would take um, the, uh, the incense and especially ground up very fine, probably burned, you know, really quickly and produced a lot of smoke. Um, and they would bring that in and put that on coals in the, the high priest would put that in the most holy place. And, um, and it would, you know, represent those prayers there, but it also was a kind of a cloud so that um, it protected the priest from the presence of God as he met with God in there. But I think probably some connection here to atonement and, and that really close dwelling with God and, and hearing from his word. I don't know how much we're meant to be pulled into the day of atonement, but that certainly was kind of the height of all of their celebrations and uh and incense was a, a major part of that that day i'm glad that you mentioned that matt because one of our um like studies have been done and one of the best ways to trigger our ability to remember is through our nose you'd be surprised how often a smell can bring you back to a memory that you have of you know a loved one like i still walk in certain places and if i smell it I'm like, oh, that reminds me of my grandparents' house or, oh, that reminds me of this perfume that uh, I used to smell or this reminds me of this or that. And I think back to the idea of like you were bringing up, Matt, um, about the Day of Atonement and more specifically when God was telling Moses the actual recipe for the incense that he was going to make. And one of the things that God specified to Moses was, you are not allowed to mix this to use outside of when it is supposed to be used during prayer. And I think one of the reasons why is because God knew our sensory abilities in drawing connections with our smell. And he wanted to specifically use that smell of that specific recipe of incense to bring us back to the importance of him and what he reminds the Israelites over and over again, that he is their God who brought them out of Israel um, and brought the, or brought them out of Egypt, out of slavery. And I think that this has a really good tie in with that, where, you know, where we make connections with our nose. And this would be one of those ways to kind of bring our attention back to the Lord as well. Hmm. Do you guys know if the, uh, was it Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, who offered strange fire before the Lord and were killed? I don't, I don't know if that strange fire was some different mix of uh, incense or if that was some other reference. But maybe, maybe there's a connection there of God protecting that, the, even the sense of it. Um, I mean, the sin of it really was that they were trying to do something innovative, innovative of their own ideas and not following the words of the lord and his ways you know yeah it was, unauthorized fire would be yeah, unauthorized fire but unauthorized wor worship yeah but god protects that stuff because it's all important and it, it's all connected with um 
his word and and uh, worshiping him alone in the right way and um but yeah when you know god has wanted to have this special relationship with us to dwell with us to be able to have us come to him in prayer and and uh and he wants to receive our prayers and be pleased with them and so when we come in faith by according to his word and trusting in his promise and salvation you know um the the prayers and the worship that we offer to him is extremely pleasing to him and and we can think fondly like those memories um even triggered by sense and stuff we can you know think of those the loving relationship we have with the lord i have i have one of those things mike too where i have this old really cool old leather binocular case and binoculars and it's got some fabric on the inside and every time i pop that thing open it smells exactly like my grandpa's van that we would go out on adventures in and we'd look for deer and and these things and the smell is still in there and and uh it's it's like you know a priceless thing for me you know my my grandpa's gone on to be with the lord and so it just but the the memories just flood back and the this loving relationship is is brought to my memory um so quickly that's a really cool connection um and to think that that's an intended thing uh for our relationship with the Lord. Yeah, Mike, to, to go off of that too, it's, it's interesting that you brought that up because this, I don't know, I think this too makes a, a good argument for, or at least something we can consider, for example, in um, what maybe many would call high church, for example. But, you know, sometimes we have this idea that our worship, it only, you know, if it's true worship, it only goes on inside of us but God really engages all of our senses. I mean, we see that throughout the old Testament, you know, not only with the, the altar of incense, but you know, how the priests were dressed the, the altar for burnt offering, all of these things. And so, you know, there'd be things that people would do physically as they participated in worship and so on. And so it really engages all of the senses. And so when we do things, you know, like, like if we burn incense at, you know, at our churches or in certain services or, you know, the things that we do, if our, you know, pastors wear vestments, for example, or we adorn the altar, you know, with pyramids, you know, of different colors and different significance. If we've, you know, have the, you know, the veil of the, of the chalice and we, and we set the altar in a certain way when we, um, celebrate the sacrament of holy communion or if when we approach the altar you know we bow in in reverence before entering you know this holy space if we you know these kinds of things as long i mean as well as you know rich imagery of you know artwork and pictures and so on and all of this um it's all part of that you know worship of god the worship you know it's not just engaging the mind or it's not just engaging the 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 heart as it were, where everything is located on the inside. It's also on the outside of me. It's also my entire, you know, body, all of my senses participating in, in this. And, and it really does give us a, a richer experience in, in that way, not the experience is everything, but, but we learn things also through, you know, physical motion. You know, we don't just learn things by, 
by hearing or by seeing them also, but by what we do. And so anyways, all this kind of stuff, it's very physical stuff. And so it should just also help to remind us that God is, God does not despise the physical things, the created world. It's not just, you know, on the inside of me, but it is outside of me as well. It is physical things um, that God has seen fit to incorporate into the worship of him that engages the whole person and all that. So it's just kind of interesting because we see that show up here, you know, as mentioned in uh, before the throne of God itself, it's not just, Oh, that was, you know, old covenant. So had physical elements and now we've graduated to just the, you know, spiritual inside of me, but even, you know, before the throne, we see white robes, we see altars, we see incense burning. We have all of these kinds of things that still music worship, uh, yeah. worship music. Yeah. And, you know, as well as, you know, things like, you know, basically memorized prayers and so on and so forth, words that everyone, you know, says the same. And so we see a lot of what, what we would, you know, maybe uh, some would associate with something called high church or whatever, but we could just call it, you know, or liturgical worship. We see that in heaven as well. And so um, that's not, you know, just some, I don't know. Anyways, so it's just kind of interesting that we see it, we see it there uh, in heaven as well. So that just kind of connected me and Mike when you're talking about the sensory experience as well. So and talking... God, made, God made us that way too. And, and he wants to connect with us on all of those levels as a whole person. And, you know, some of us lean towards being a visual learner too, or an auditory learner or these kinds of things, but God made us that way. And he's connecting with us as he made us in the most complete way. And that's, that's the kind of relationship he wants with us too. So talking about the importance of kind of some of those external things in worship, I've got a question. If any of you guys ever actually grabbed the incense and used it during the worship service or during a specific service? I haven't used no. incense, but um, so my wife is part of Young Living, which is like an essential oil um, company. And they have a, um, <clears throat> they have like a set of oils that are oils from the Bible. And so she actually uh, got that set. And I used that set during a Monday, Thursday service during communion and, and did a, that type of sensoriness where I was like, I don't know if anyone's ever asked you to smell something in church other than like, if the milk is good for fellowship, but we're going to pass around these oils, uh, in terms of smell. And then I'm going to explain to you, like, so these were in scripture for this reason, they were used for, you know, this type of reason. So like one of the coolest ones is like hyssop. So like hyssop naturally grew, and uh, near the crucifixion. And the reason why is because hyssop has the ability, the smell of it is more potent than the smell of death. So like, think about that. So like hyssop grew around where Christ was crucified because at that point there were multiple people being crucified and you would think like dead bodies in that area that probably wouldn't smell the greatest. And so like, here's hyssop that that's able to combat within the smell of death, you know? So it's kind of, it's, it's a, it's a cool thing. So I've used that. I've never actually done the incense thing before, but I have done uh, like oils that I've passed around. I, I did it one time uh, this, uh, this year in, 
in January, beginning of January, celebrating Epiphany or the Gentile Christmas um, and the, the gifts that the Magi brought to Jesus. And, um, and we, so we burned frankincense and myrrh in the service. And um, did you melt gold? Did I melt gold? Yeah. No, <laughs> I, I couldn't afford that. Yeah. This is, this is all the gold I have possession of, <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, it was, it was interesting. Um, although I heard that, you know, as I was like talking to the little, little kids about incense and stuff, I'm like, this is a great smell that pleases God. And one of the kids leans over to their sibling and goes, this stuff stinks. <laughs> and, you know, it's not everybody likes it, but it was definitely a memorable thing. And um, it might've been the first time it had been used in this church too. I mean, at least it was in people's memory. It's interesting that you mentioned that, Matt, because that just made me think of, you know, how, so at the tabernacle and the temple, you had the altar for burnt offering, right? And God speaks of that as a pleasing aroma to him. But think about what does, what does charred flesh smell like? Not good, right? Like we wouldn't associate that with like, ooh, this smells really great. But, you know, you have that, that promise that it is pleasing to God because here is the, you know, the sacrifice for sins as it were. So it's, it's just kind of an interesting thing. Like it doesn't necessarily smell good to our noses, but God gives his benediction on that. You know, this is pleasing to me. Um, because of what it of what it is and I have commanded that this be done for this purpose and so when you see that smoke rising you know when you smell that charred flesh you know you know that God is pleased with you because that you know in that case that animal has died for you know in my place you know and ultimately of course pointing us to Jesus but smelling that incense whether you particularly you know, like the scent of it or not, or seeing the smoke rise, you can, it can be a, a helpful, you know, reminder, you know, God is pleased with the prayers of his people and he has pronounced his benediction upon them. So they can be useful and, in those ways. And we just like the same way we have confidence in certain bread and, and wine and water, right? When it's attached with God's promise and his word that gives us confidence that it is effective and it pleases God. Um, and, and so God has again, chosen to use physical things in this world. He's made us physical beings and he works with things in this world as he brings his miraculous salvation to us and restores a relationship with us. So not everybody's used incense in their service. I did it once here too. Mike's used uh, the essential oils. Ben didn't comment. I think he's keeping it a secret for us, whether or not he has. But I can guarantee what happens next. Secret fire. Secret fire. <laughs> what, uh, what John sees next, though, <laughs> is, uh, is something none of us have done. Because the angel takes the censer, fills it with fire from the altar, and throws it upon the earth. What, what in the world is this? is this imagery you're teaching us? Because after he throws it on the earth, there, there's thunder and rumblings, flashes of lightning, earthquakes. Well, it's interesting, the, the imagery of the, you know, lightning and thunder and earthquakes kind of calls to mind Mount Sinai, right? When God comes down 
on the on that mountain and it's you know billowing smoke you know it's like a furnace up there it's flashes of light so much so the other people thought that moses is surely dead up there you know but god's god's visible presence there you know came down with kind of these um terrifying things you know and awe-inspiring you know like this is definitely you know god and his majesty you know he's making himself known here and these same kinds of similar things you know um what earthquake and sky darkening and things like that you know at the death of christ as well so can kind of see those those same kind of images same kind of language same kind of description there as well so connect some of those things so god god coming to meet with his people or i don't know okay yeah and like in this context it's more wrath i mean you know i mean like if you think about that like you know god coming down on mount sinai was not exactly an inviting thing don't you know, touch wasn't, this mountain or you'll die <laughs> right it wasn't like wasn't like it was like whoo thunder lightning flashes of smoke and earthquakes let's run up the mountain it's like yeah. no let's stay away lest we die right and so you know when god comes to his people in a in a gracious way like he came in a pillar of cloud or a pillar of fire that wasn't you know like um lightning and whatnot or you know and ultimately comes in jesus but this is more you know god in his in his majesty and his deadliness to sinners like you're saying Matt, like you know stay back from the mountain don't even touch it not even your animals touch the mountain or you or they will die. Mm-hmm. And so this is God in his threatening presence, like threatening to the sinner. You don't want to mess with this. You know, and so and that would tie in also with Jesus at at his death. This is God's wrath. This is God's judgment. This is this is deadly God, you know, mm-hmm. deadly to sinners. I wonder if this is kind of like a signal fire too, you know, like they you know you'd have up on a hilltop or something and you might fan it with a blanket or something and send up a you know smoke signals or something fire you know something about is about to happen here i don't know for sure if that's kind of part of the idea but you know right after this then we've got the seven trumpets blowing certainly was like a a big attention grabbing thing you know everybody's going to be on alert now um and 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 looking to see what's happening uh and and it will you know there's a lot that will come right after this then too yeah it's interesting to to know um another commentator lou bright and he just comments on the uh the verb there for pouring out on or filling with fire you know and throwing on the earth it's in the um perfect tense and so kind of the, the idea then is that the action carries on beyond, you know, so not just, or the effects are not just there at the, like, oh, I just poured it out and then it's done, but it's going to continue on. And so, you know, the, the bowl is not emptied of fire until the final trumpet is completed. So the entire time, of the trumpets this fire is being poured upon the earth and so it seems that to indicate also the ongoing you know wrath of god that culminates in the final judgment and then it is thereby finally completed and there's peace in you know, new heavens and new earth and so um 
so again, this would this would help to to reinforce too that the, the trumpets are also describing the current time frame that we are in and have been in. Like this is an ongoing thing. It's not just something way in the future of fire being poured out on the earth, but it's it's going on and it's going to continue on until the ultimate judgment, which is that final judgment, and then God's wrath is completed. Um, so so kind of as as we we'll get into the trumpets as we go through and kind of keeping that, that image in our mind of fire is being poured out on the earth from this golden censer. Can we connect this back then to the, to the fifth seal? I mean, we're, we're talking about the prayers of the saints as the incense, right? And the fifth seal, when it's opened, we have, we have the saints crying out, Oh, sovereign Lord, holy and true. How long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Um, you know, God says, wait a little while longer until, <clears throat> until everyone, or until your number is complete, you know, mm-hmm. wait a little while longer. Can we see this as, as a kind of a beginning of the fulfillment? This is that waiting a while longer until that final trumpet, until that judgment comes. Can we, can we make that connection there to, the, to those saints? It I think so. I think it seems to fit. Oh, yeah. go ahead, Matt. Um, I, I mean, what came to my mind was the imprecatory psalms, right? The ones where you're praying a curse upon your enemies who oppress you and calling God to come and, and bring justice against evildoers that are hurting you. And and that, you know, would be kind of like what Mike was just referencing there earlier in Revelation. And so if this is the same censer that contained the incense that were the prayers of the saints, and now it's filled with the fire, like God's wrath, and it's being thrown down at the earth um, in judgment. And now imagine from earth's perspective, you got fire raining down from heaven and lightning coming with God's wrath and the whole place is shaking um, and quaking. You know, this is, it seems to me a picture of God answering those prayers. And after now his patience is, is uh, over his long suffering is over. Now he's beginning to, uh, to finally answer all of those prayers and bring justice and wrath. Well, does anybody have any clothing, closing thoughts? That brought us to the end of uh, verse five there. I'll, yeah, I think I'll, good. Oh, oh. Yeah, go, ahead. go ahead, Ben. Oh, I was going to say, um, it's good to, you know, as we look at the, you know, the seals and all of that, it's good to remember that the, the focus of this, you know, first cycle of seven is really on the last part that we, that we looked at the 144,000 and the great multitude. So we have, you know, again, the church militant, the church here on earth that is still actively engaged in battle, the church triumphant, which stand you know, is before the throne of God in heaven at rest clothed in white. Um, that's really the emphasis and the focus. And in those, in that part, it's, it's all about how God seals and protects his people and how we our final, you know, end and dwelling place will be with, Christ forever. And so, so even in the midst of all this stuff, we're like, oh, we're talking about wrath or we're talking about judgment or we're talking about all these things, you know, that stands at the center. God protects his people and our end destination is with Christ forever. So if we can keep those 
mm-hmm. front and center being good. And I, I was just going to bring it back to the cross. I mean, this all this cosmic distress, right, Ben? Do you, are you proud of me? Again? I'm always proud of you. <laughs> this cosmic distress stuff sounds a whole lot like when Jesus died on the cross and the sky grew dark and the earth shook and there was sounds of thunder and the temple curtain was torn, right? And, and Jesus opened the way for us. Um, and, and so we, when we think about this picture of God's wrath, then we can think about that, that the full venting of God's wrath was poured out on Jesus that day on the cross. And, and for all of us who then trust in Jesus, we do not need to fear this day because Jesus has taken all of that wrath for us. And so this, this wrath would only be falling then on, on those who rejected Jesus and wanted to stand on their own. Um, and, and for the rest of us, this is God answering our prayers and delivering us from our enemies. And, and we are then the church tri- triumphant, like Ben was referencing the church who is with God, protected at peace, pure and holy, um, and enjoying um, the safety of his presence. It's not complete silence, though, because somebody's got a clock ticking. (laughs) (laughs) All right, good way to wrap it up, guys. Ben, would you mind closing us in a word of prayer? Sure. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thanks uh, once again that we could take some time to uh, study your word, and we thank you for the word that you have given to us. Yes, even the parts of your word that speak of your wrath and your judgment and your anger against sin and against sinners. And we pray that when we hear those words of wrath, those words of, of judgment and your great anger against sin that that would always serve to bring us to a recognition of our own sinfulness and that we may repent, confess those sins before you and know that they are covered by the blood of your son. And we pray too that for those who do not yet trust in you, that your wrath that is being poured out would bring them to repentance so they may be spared uh, that final wrath that is coming. Um, and in that note, too, we thank you that as those who belong to you, that though um, we may endure and certainly do, you know, at times endure your temporal wrath on this earth and even to the point where we may indeed ourselves physically die. We thank you that we are spared your eternal wrath, your ultimate wrath, which you poured out on Jesus instead of us. And so we thank you for your grace and the comfort of eternal life with you that awaits us when you return. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Don't forget, guys, next week, Jason Goodham. Be sure to tune in. We'll see you next Thursday.